Well, thank you so much, ladies, for that beautiful, powerful song. We have more of that to look forward to uh, this uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Um, Lots of special music and um, the opportunity to sing some of our favorite uh, carols together, our favorite hymns. And uh, I'm super excited about the message that God is stirring in my heart for uh, this Christmas. And uh, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Philippians, uh, you know the very next text is the classic passage in the entire Bible on the incarnation. The passage about God existing or Jesus existing in the form of God and deciding to empty himself, choosing to empty himself and being found in the appearance of a man, being born in the likeness of a man, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then how God exalted him. Um, I couldn't think of a better text for Christmas. And so I want to save that for this next weekend. And so um, in light of that, I had to figure out what to do this morning. And so we're kind of on a roll here in regards to um, the, the subject of unity. And so I wanted to continue uh, this theme that is really a dominant theme in the scriptures, particularly the New Testament when it comes to the church, that uh, we need to understand how important unity is to God. In fact, it is uh, our unity as a church is a profound um, expression of the nature of the triune God. There is perfect unity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are being prayed for right now by Christ, by the second member of the Trinity, that we would be perfected in unity as well. And so this is a very, very important subject that I don't think we can spend too much time on. And so what I thought we should do is turn to Ephesians this morning, which is the sister letter to Philippians. As you know, there was four pastor, or excuse me, uh, prison epistles, four uh, letters that, that Paul wrote during uh, his first Roman imprisonment, Philippians being one of those, but uh, he also wrote Ephesians and, um, and Colossians and uh, Philemon. And uh, what is um, noticeable when you read these four letters, they're very similar. Uh, there's lots of shared language, common expressions and phrases, and it would be like you maybe writing your Christmas cards uh, the last few weeks or so, and maybe you wanted to write a, a greeting in each one of them, more than just sign your name or whatever, and, and so uh, by, the, by the 50th greeting card, it was all sounding the same. You're pretty much saying the same thing, using the same words, the same expressions, um, because it's what was on your heart and what you wanted to share to everyone, not just a specific person, um, but you wanted to share this sentiment with everyone. And so that's really what we see in the, in the prison epistles that Paul was sharing very similar things. They, the same things were on his heart for all the churches that he had, had, had been a part of planting. And so when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we see um, really similar language, and it's really the parallel passage, I guess, to what we just have been looking at in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Uh, the last two messages in our series on Philippians uh, really are the parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let, let me read, well, I'll just read 1 through 6 to get it, the, the passage in our mind. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You remember Paul exhorted the Philippian church in the chapter, first chapter, verse 27, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Same language, just maybe a slight tweaking of a word or two, but the same point, the same principle. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Again, this should sound familiar that you would not only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, but that you would be one mind, one heart, striving together for the work of the gospel, for the faith. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this privilege we have to once again go to your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, these ancient verses that have timeless principles for us today. And especially uh, during the season of Christmas, there's so much here for us to understand and to apply to our lives. And I pray your spirit would be actively working uh, in our midst today to open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and to help us to make application of these uh, in our lives this next week and in the weeks to come, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the common expressions that we've all grown used to hearing uh, and seeing at Christmas time is that expression, peace on earth. Have you heard it? Have you seen it? Uh, it's everywhere. It's on uh, Christmas cards, it's on signs and banners and advertisements and ornaments and wrapping paper, and it's included in the lyrics of some of the favorite uh, Christmas carols that we sing, and it's mentioned in some of the classic Christmas specials that we watch every year on, on TV. And we know that familiar saying finds its origin uh, in the text that we read earlier in Luke chapter 2, when the multitude of angels appeared in the sky after the birth of Christ was announced to to some shepherds tending their flocks in the Bethlehem hills. And this is what the angels said in Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. We know that Christ came to earth not just to be born, but to die on a cross in the place of sinners like you and like me so that we could experience peace with God and peace with our fellow man. Sadly, though, those who reject Christ as their Lord and Savior never experience peace with God, and they consistently experience conflicts with other people. It's no wonder that the, the phrase peace on earth has been adopted as the slogan for world peace. And we see it often in things like the United Nations and other contexts to encourage nations and and people groups to get along with each other. Well, one of the worst conflicts among mankind happened in our own nation's history, the Civil War, when our people fought against each other. And you may not know this, but uh, the famous American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, lived through our country's war against itself, which lasted uh, between 1861 and 1865. And midway through the Civil War in 1863, it was Christmas Day, and Longfellow awoke to hear the church bells ringing forth carols with the well-known line, Peace on Earth. And rather than welcoming that, expression into his heart. He struggled with that. It had just been two years earlier that he had lost his precious wife who tragically died after her dress had caught on fire and he had awoken from a nap and he tried to extinguish the flames with, uh, with a rug first and then his own body, but she suffered severe burns and passed away the next day. In fact, his own facial burns were so severe he was unable to attend his own wife's funeral. He grew a beard to hide his, his burned face and at times feared that he would end up in, a, in an asylum because of his grief. He was so overwhelmed with his grief. And what's more, Longfellow just had received news on December 1st, just 25 days earlier, that his oldest son was nearly paralyzed by a bullet wound that he suffered during a recent Civil War battle. And so there Longfellow sat on Christmas Day, hearing the church bells ring, peace on earth, and in an attempt to just express the conflict and despair that was in his own heart, 
based on his own loss and the conflict and despair that he saw in our country at the time, he wrote a poem called Christmas Bells. Let me just read for you a portion of, of Longfellow's poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That poem may be familiar to you because it was later adapted into the famous carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which, like the poem, ends on a very hopeful note that because God is alive and he's awake, it is possible for men to live peaceably together. You might be thinking this morning, hearing all this, that you wish peace were possible, not just in the world, but you're more concerned about the lack of peace, the conflict, maybe in your marriage or in your family, between your children, um, with your parents, maybe with your neighbors, maybe in your workplace. In fact, I was thinking about this, that it's ironic that for some of us, Christmas time is when we face the worst conflicts all year because we have all this added interaction with, with our family members and some of them that may not be our favorites, right, that show up in town and, and uh, it's awkward and it's difficult and, 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 and there's maybe years of unresolved issues there and, or maybe it's with your neighbors or, or coworkers. But I think if we're honest this morning, we would all admit that from time to time throughout the year, we experience civil wars. Civil wars between our spouses uh, or civil wars with our children or with our parents or with our brothers or sisters or with our community members or our coworkers in our workplaces, even sometimes in our churches, we experience conflict or a civil war, and we end up fighting against each other rather than getting along with each other and living peaceably together. And that's what I think is so hopeful about this passage that we have before us this morning, because it shows us how to keep the peace. Really, the main point is here, being diligent, verse 3, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This passage is all about keeping the peace. And if you've ever wondered how, how to do that, how do I get along with my wife? How do I get along with my husband? How do I get along with my parents or my children or my brothers or sisters or my neighbors or my boss or my coworkers or my classmates or, or that person sitting down the aisle right now for me that I really don't like here in church? They just kind of grade on me. How do I get along with that person? Well, here we have the answer, the secret, the key. And notice the context here in Ephesians chapter 4. We, we know that uh, verse 1 is really the hinge on which this entire letter turns. So Paul says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That word therefore is very important. It's a connecting word. It connects what he's about to say in chapters 4, 5, and 6 to what he has just said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so he's, ex he's exhorting them to to walk worthy of their calling, which he has just got done describing in chapters 1 through 3. Paul was saying that, that how we live our lives needs to match up with who we are in Christ. We need to conduct ourselves, as he said in Philippians, in a manner worthy of the gospel. We need to practice our position in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians are all about our position in Christ. He explained all we as believers are in Christ. It's the doctrinal section. And then the remaining part, portion of this letter, chapter 4 through 6, is, is Paul describing 
how we should live as a result. What, what does a worthy walk look like? What is our duty, our responsibility as, as Christians, as believers? And I think it's important that we realize of all the things that Paul could have said, let me outline for you what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of your calling as a Christian. There's a whole lot of things he could have picked from to talk about. But the very first thing he addresses with them when it comes to how they should live their lives is the subject of what? Unity. Unity. That was on the top of his list. And, and we know this was a dominant theme in Paul's writings. He was pleased. It seems like he was constantly pleading with believers, with Christians in the first century for unity, particularly within the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 he said to the Corinthians, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Later on in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he said, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13, he said, live in peace with one another. And then I love what it says in Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. You say, what are those things? What are those things I need to pursue which make for peace? Well, Paul gives us a list here of the specific things which make for peace that we should be pursuing in our lives. We see them in verses 2 and three of Ephesians chapter four. These are, by the way, attitudes with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I said, getting along with one another, keeping the peace, if you will, in our homes, in our, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces here in this church, it's all about having the right attitudes, the right attitudes. And so what we see here are five attitudes, five attitudes in verses two and three that are essential to maintaining unity in the church, or you could say getting along with others or keeping the peace in the church. And again, this is not just the church. While Paul was focusing in on the unity that we enjoy as the church of Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ, I think these five attitudes are also applicable to keeping the peace in our marriages and in our homes and in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our uh, places of work. And I think it's important that we see this right from the very beginning, verse 3, it says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, it doesn't, he didn't say to create the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's not our responsibility to create unity, but simply to continue the unity that the Spirit of God has already created. God produces it, and we need to preserve it. That word preserve there means to guard, to keep, to maintain. Unity is a very fragile gift that the Lord has given us as his children and as Christ's followers, and he's established unity within the church. In fact, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, just look back a page maybe in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 14, talking about the unity that God established through Christ. This is Ephesians 2, 14, for he himself is our peace, talking about Christ, who made both groups Jews and Gentiles into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in its flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to, de by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, for through him... We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so it's because of the cross and it's through the Holy Spirit that Christ sent, promised to send to us, that we enjoy unity. 
And so Paul was explaining here how God in Christ abolished the division between Jews and Gentiles and joined them together in this one new group of people called the church, something completely new. No one ever saw this thing come, and it was a mystery in the mind of God, and God granted Paul the privilege of revealing this mystery in his letters to the church. And so now Paul was pleading with the church to live out this unity, to experience practically what was true theologically. And so he talks about the unity of the Spirit here. Be diligent, preserve the unity of the Spirit. And again, it's the Holy Spirit who makes us one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. So there's something that all of us have as Christians, something internal that binds us together, that, that bonds our hearts, and, and, and that's the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 Paul says, do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Typically, when we hear those verses, we think about how the Spirit of God dwells within us individually, but I think in that context, specifically, Paul was talking about the corporate indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit not only indwells each of us personally, but also corporately. He, he indwells this entire body, and, and that's the magnetic attraction, if you will, of any group of believers like this. Um, You think about the difference between uh, a bag of marbles and a bag of magnets. You think about that, okay? If you were to tear that bag filled with the marbles, what would happen to those marbles? They would just just, just pour out onto the floor and then they, they would just roll off in every different direction, right? But if you tore a bag full of magnets, what, what would happen to those magnets? they would just fall to the ground and they would stick together. Why? Because there's something within them that's holding them together. There's this magnetic attraction. And for us, that's the way the church should be because of the magnetism, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. He's the one thing we have in common. And so nothing can ever destroy this, this basic unity of the Spirit that's within the body of Christ. But the Holy Spirit can be quenched The Holy Spirit can be grieved when the members of Christ's body fight with one another. You just need to look a little further in chapter 4 there of Ephesians. Notice verse 30. Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You say, well, what is he talking about? Well, look at the very next verse. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He gives a list of these sinful uh, attitudes and emotions that are really the exact opposite of what he lists in verses 2 and 3. And he's saying when you have these, when you have bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander in your relationships with each other and, and have malicious thoughts and, and words and actions, I mean, you're, the, the Holy Spirit is grieved. This grieves the Holy Spirit. It saddens the Holy Spirit. And so he says you need to put those things away and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. There's nothing more damaging to the body of Christ when we fight amongst ourselves, when there's bitterness and there's wrath and there's anger and there's clamor and there's slander and there's there's malice. It's It's like cancer. And, and there's a lot that I don't understand about cancer, but I think I understand the, the basic principle behind cancer, and that is your body starts to fight against itself. That's what cancer is. Your body fights against itself. And so when, whenever there's conflict between a husband and wife or parent and child or brother or sister or coworker or church member, there's, there's a cancer that, that needs to be addressed, that needs to be uh, removed, and, and so that healing can take place. 
I think it's a, it's a terrible testimony to, to unbelievers when Christians can't get along with one another. We talked about that last week. What a, what a terrible representation of the gospel when they, people from the outside look into the life of a church and they see the members of a church squabbling with one another and arguing with one another like, give me a break. You guys are worse than, you're either just like the world or you're even worse than the world because you know better, or at least you say you know better, and I don't want anything to do with you. It's a terrible testimony. And so based on Christ's prayer in John 17, when he prayed that, the, the, that his followers would be perfected in unity, what, what we can learn from that is that the testimony of Christ in the world is directly related to the unity of Christ's followers in the church. There's a, there's a bond of peace here. Notice, again, back in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This common bond has been produced, as I already mentioned, by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. He's what brings us all together and, and holds us together like, like super glue. And, and notice, again, in verses 4, 5, and 6, all these things that, that should draw us and hold us together. There, there, there's one body and one spirit and just as you were called in one hope of your calling and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What is the one word that's used over and over again in there? The word one. So it's talking about the oneness that we should enjoy. And again, it's, it's God's job to manufacture the unity and the peace among believers, which he did through Christ's death on the cross and through the sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. It's his job to manufacture that unity, but it's our job to maintain it. It's our job to maintain it. Some of your translations might say, being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You say, how do we do that? What is the way we preserve or maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, I think it's the way we do it is by maintaining the right attitudes. The right attitudes. And again, Paul listed five attitudes here that are essential to preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I want to look at these, these five attitudes one at a time this morning. First of all, we need to be humble. We need to be humble. In other words, don't be prideful. He says, with all humility, with all humility. And you remember from last week, I said there, there was no word in the Greek language for humility. Why? It was a foreign concept to, to the Greeks and the Romans. They, they considered it weak. They considered it cowardly. They considered it faint-hearted. It was, it, was, it was a groveling attitude that was unworthy of the ideal man, right? The Greeks prided themselves in being the ideal race. And this was something only a slave should have to do. And so it appears that that Christians, Paul in particular, coined this expression, this, this word humility. And, and, and he took two words, two Greek words, uh, and made a one word. And the two words were, well, the first word meant low, and the second word meant to think or to judge. So you put those words together, and what does humility mean? It means to think of yourself as low, to, to have a lowliness of mind. It's the opposite of what we heard last week, thinking highly of yourself. Romans 12, 3, for, though, uh, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. In Philippians chapter 2, right, we looked at verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of what? Mind, consider others more important than yourselves. Don't just merely look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. This is the idea of humility here. And of course, the example he, he, he gave in Philippians uh, was Jesus. Have this same attitude that was in Jesus, who, even though he was God, very God, was willing to humble himself and take on the form of a man. And, and not just become a man, but actually be killed, to be crucified. And uh, we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, this next Saturday and Sunday. But there's much that we can learn from that example of Jesus when it comes to being humble. 
I mean, sometimes we were treated harshly or unfairly. We maybe feel like we've been dealt with in an unthoughtful way or an inappropriate way. And let's face it, I mean, we're, we're tempted to have a pity party, to feel sorry for ourselves. And, and really, what, what a pity party is, it's a pride party. That's all a pity party is. It's a pride party. You sit around thinking about what? Yourself. The great British preacher, now in heaven, John Stott, made this simple statement. I love it. It's so clear and succinct. He said this, quote, pride lurks behind all discord. Pride lurks behind all discord. That's why last week we titled that passage, uh, Unity Through Humility, right? That how, do, how do you achieve unity? Well, it's, it's only going to happen when you're humble. That is the secret. That is the key to unity is being humble. And so the first step to, to resolving conflict with another person is to humble yourself before them. You may have already had an opportunity to do that this this morning, or you might have an opportunity this afternoon or this week, you get in a conflict with your spouse or, or somebody, another family member, and, and what is the beginning of resolution and reconciliation? Somebody's got to say, you know what, I was wrong, would you please forgive me, right? Somebody's got to humble, who's going to humble themselves first? It always comes down, who's going to humble themselves first? I love the example that I've heard before of two people walking along this narrow pass in the mountains, and it was just right on the edge of this cliff, and it kind of just went around this rim of this canyon, and there was only room enough for one person to pass. And so here come these two hikers, and they're coming around the bend, and they end up face-to-face on this narrow path with no place to go. You can't climb up and you can't go down or you'll fall to your death. So they're at an impasse. What are they going to do? Well, they can turn around and go back the other way. Or a creative, simple solution is one of them gets down on their knees and the other one crawls over them and they continue their journey. In other words, somebody has to humble themselves. What a, what a great example of, of, of what we should do when we encounter an apparent impasse. Notice I said an apparent. It, it appears that there's an impasse. We're, we're, we can't go any further. No, there's always a way, and it comes through you humbling yourself. Let me bow down and humble myself. Let you walk over me, right? And, and we can get through this. Now, again, I'm not ta- talking about letting people walk all over you. That's not the principle here. But it's humbling yourself and deferring to the, other, to the other person. Yielding the right of way. Submitting to one another in love, if you will. And so the first attitude that we need to have to, to get along with each other, to keep the peace, is that we need to be humble. Don't be prideful. Secondly, we need to be gentle. We need to be gentle. Another way of saying that is don't be harsh. Don't be harsh. Notice he says, with all humility and gentleness. This this attitude uh, expresses itself in a patient submissiveness to offense, free from malice and in any desire for revenge. It's it's really the opposite of asserting your rights. It's it's not being rude. It's not being harsh. It's maybe uh, the best word we could use to kind of if we were to pull out a thesaurus, and what would be a comparable word is the word meekness. Meekness. What a great word. Meekness essentially means strength or power under control. Strength or power under control. In fact, the Greek word described this word here, gentleness, this particular word, this this word was used to describe a soothing medicine, a, a cult that had been broken, and a soft wind. You think about that. We, we, we experienced some heavy wind last night, didn't we? Stuff blowing all over the place, cars going back and forth, stuff blowing, oh, don't hit that. Thing, you know, people's, you know, Frosty's rolling down the street and, you know, their, their inflatables are all over the neighborhood, right? Um, we, we, that, was, that was violent wind. That was not soft wind. But again, how refreshing, how 
helpful, how useful are all these things, medicine and a wild stallion and wind when, when their power is under control and harnessed. And that's the idea here is it's, it's, it, you need to have this strength, this power under control. We have a couple of examples in, in the scripture of meek men. In the Old Testament, we have Moses. Numbers 12, 3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. There was a, there was a, a, a quiet strength about Moses. And uh, if, if, you, if you think he was kind of a mealy mouth, you know, Casper, milk toast kind of guy, you know, just kind of this humble, unassuming guy, well, you just have to read Exodus 32 when he found out that uh, his, his brother Aaron had, had uh, built this golden calf and led the people in some kind of sexual orgy and they were worshiping this, this, this uh, golden calf and he comes down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he smashes those commandments and he comes into the camp and he says, who's ever on the Lord's side, come over here. And so all the Levites come over and he says, strap on your swords, men, and we're going to go kill everyone who's worshiping this false god. And they went through and they killed their own family members, their own neighbors, um, out of zeal and passion, this righteous indignation for the holiness of God. So again, the, the, the Moses was strength, passion, zeal under control. How about Jesus? We know that it's said of Jesus, or he said of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. We, we love that image of, of the gentle, meek shepherd. But we also need to have a balanced perspective because we also see Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 clearing out the temple of the money changers. And he didn't just walk in and say, oh, guys, this is really not a good idea. You really shouldn't do this. And God's not happy with this. And No, he tore into them. He made a whip and he drove all the animals out. He was overturning tables. I mean, there was righteous indignation. Again, strength, power under control. And both Moses and Jesus never got angry when they were personally dishonored. But when they, say, when they saw God dishonored, they got mad. They got what's called righteously indignant. And so a gentle, meek person is one who is in the middle between one who gets mad all the time and one who never gets mad. Right, we think it's, it's a spiritual thing. He'll never get mad. Well, it depends. Are you mad at the things God's mad about? Are you righteously indignant? The point is, we need to learn to only get angry at the right time and at the right things. In fact, in Ephesians 4 here, in verse 26, he says, be angry and yet don't sin. So apparently there's a way to be angry and not be sinful, and I would think that would qualify as righteous indignation. This gentleness, this gentle attitude that Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to have and us to have, we can see fleshed out in a couple other places in Scripture, like Galatians 6.1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Harshness? No, a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. How about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24? I love this counsel that Paul gave Timothy, knowing that he was up against some, some, uh, some serious conflict and adversaries in the church there um, in Ephesus um, after the false teachers arose in their midst, some of the elders had to be uh, booted from the, the elder board, if you will, handed over to Satan because of their false teaching. But notice what he says here in verse um, 23, or verse 24. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. 
So you don't want to just lay into somebody and say, well, this is what the truth is and, you know, take it or leave it. And no, there needs to be a gentleness in how you correct those who are opposing you. And then at the end of the day, I think this is where we have to land in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, when, when Paul was addressing the whole idea of lawsuits and when you get sued, uh, somebody sues you or you feel like maybe you have the right to sue someone else for wronging you or ripping you off. What does it say here? Um, it says in verse 7, actually then it is already de- defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? There's just a, a gentleness, a humility there. A meekness. A bowing low and being willing to be wronged. So we need to be humble. We need to be gentle. Thirdly, we need to be patient. We need to be patient. Back there in Ephesians 4, he says, with patience, with patience. And in other words, don't be impatient. And by the way, this is something you don't have to pray for. If you do, you're stupid, right? If you pray for patience, right? Because it's gonna, God's going to answer that prayer instantly, right? He's not going to have to, you're not going to be patient for that prayer to be answered, Um, hey, this is something that we all struggle with, being patient. What does this word mean? Literally, it means long-tempered. In other words, you have a long fuse. It it takes a long time before you explode. It's like a stick of dynamite. Do you have have a a short fuse that, you know, you just like to think, whoa, you're playing with fireworks, right? And, and, And that thing has a short fuse and it like almost explodes in your hand before you just get it off. Or sometimes it's this long fuse that takes forever and you walk up to it and go, hey, how come it's not doing? And then all of a sudden you kick it a little bit and you go back and relight it and you're wondering what's the deal. Well, it just has a long fuse. It takes a while to, to, to go off. That's the idea here. You don't fly off the handle. You're, you're able to endure all sorts of insults and, and injuries and slanders and criticisms and unfair treatment without retaliating. You're, you're, you're able to put up with aggravating people and aggravating situations without losing your, your cool. You could get hurt over and over and over again, but you never complain. You're able to maintain an, an even disposition under prolonged provocation. It's like that loyal family dog that the kids just use and abuse with great pleasure. They sit on him, they ride him around, they yank on his ears and pull his tail and drag him around by the collar and and what does he do? He just kind of, he's just patient, he's very, he's long-tempered, he's forbearing, he just, he puts up with it. Maybe a, a better example might be the, the sentinel who's able to withstand abuse hurled at him for maybe from a protesting crowd or getting screamed at or even spit at in his face, but he continues to stare straight ahead and not, not move a muscle. I'm sure you've seen videos of the, of the Queen's Guard in, 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 in Great Britain that, that guard all the royal residences and they got the big funny black hats and you know they walk all funny and, and, and so they're easy to make fun of. And a lot of times you see YouTube videos you know, of guys mocking them and mimicking them and, 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 and trying to get them out of character, if you will, and these guys just straight face, just, right? Doesn't matter what anybody's doing, what everybody's saying, they're just, they're on track. Point is, you, you can't, you can't start a fight with a patient person. It's impossible. No matter how hard you try, you can't offend them. Oh, to be that kind of person. That there's no one or nothing that can set you off. Wow. Proverbs 19.11. Love this verse. A man's discretion, his wisdom, makes him slow to anger and it is to his glory to overlook a transgression. I like how the NIV translated, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. I'll never forget hearing someone say one time something that just 
struck me as so true, so profound. And he simply said this, that a mature Christian doesn't get easily offended. A mature Christian doesn't get easily offended. I think it's a good indication of how mature you are in Christ when you consider how touchy you are. Are you one of those touchy people that, that if somebody says just the wrong thing at the wrong time and the right place, I mean, you're just going to get offended? You don't want to be that person that everybody's like, you know what, I, I see this thing I want to address in this person's life, but you know what, man, they are really easily offended. I've got I to walk around eggshells around this person. That's not a good sign that you're really growing in Christ-likeness. You don't want to be that guy. Don't, don't be one that just always gets your feelings hurt and just be patient and long-suffering and be wise and be willing to overlook an offense. Well, there's a fourth attitude here, and that's be tolerant. Be tolerant. Notice he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Here it is, showing tolerance for one another. Showing tolerance for one another. In other words, don't be intolerant. You say, well, what does it mean to be tolerant? Well, it, it shows a willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behaviors that you may not necessarily agree with. Another way this is translated, translated is showing forbearance, showing forbearance for one another, which is similar to patience, by the way. It's the ability to bear up under pressure, to, to tolerate those who irritate you or aggravate you. It's, and, and by the way, it's not just maintaining some spiritual facade of, of courtesy while, while inwardly you're just seething with anger and, and, and resentment. Like Eddie Haskell, how are you, Mrs. Cleaver? And everything looks all spiritual. And, and when you're just you're in your mind, you know, you're seething in, in your heart towards this person. No, it means that you truly love that person. Even though they may not be your favorite person, even if you don't like them, you love them. Even if they do things that bug you, you... you you have the ability to put up with one another in love. That's essential here. You can't separate that last phrase, showing forbearance for one another. There's not a period there. It goes on, in love. How, how do you demonstrate, express this forbearance? How is this possible? Well, it's, it's love. It's agape. It's the selfless, sacrificial commitment that you have for other people. It's the same love that Christ had for us. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 17, 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. In other words, the, 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 the simplest way to mess up a friendship is to go around sharing the other person sins. If we love the other person, we don't, we don't go around repeating sinful situations. We, we cover that sin, that transgression with love. Why? Because we love them. 1 Peter 4.8 says it best. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And again, it's not, we're not talking about sweeping sin under the rug here, but throwing a blanket over sin. Like the example of Noah's two sons, when he got out of the ark and planted a vineyard and got drunk and he was laying in his tent naked and one of his sons came in and saw his father in that embarrassing situation and came out and said to his brothers, hey guys, check this out, man, dad's in there drunker than a skunk and he's got no clothes on and, and he thought it was funny and the two older brothers were honorable and they took a blanket and they put it on their shoulders and they walked backwards into the tent and put it over their father so they would not have to see him in that embarrassing state. It's a great example of, of love covering a multitude of sins. 
And I would say this, if love can cover sins, then surely it can also cover personality quirks and things that grate on us about other people. Listen, there's things I'm sure that that I do or don't do or say or don't say that grate on some of you, and there's some of the things you say or don't say, do or don't say, that grate on me and grate on each other. That's just, that's, that's, that's humanity. There's preferences. There's failures. There's temperaments. There's idiosyncrasies. There's all this stuff. Listen, there's, there's faults. We all have our faults. We all have our blind spots, right? Listen, if, if, if love can cover sin, it can also cover all those other things, those lesser things. Sometimes it's easier to let love cover a sin than it is just, you know, just I can't get past this person's personality. It's not necessarily sinful, right? But we should be able to. And again, in the parallel passage in Colossians, one of the other prison epistles in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, I love this. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. You think Paul was uh, kind of sharing, sharing uh, some phrases and expressions when he was writing Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians? Yeah. He was maybe looking at, what did, now what did I say to the Ephesians again? Oh yeah, I got to talk about humility and oh yeah, gentleness. And I mean, I think he was including some similar things in all of these letters. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And here it is, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It really comes down to love. It comes down to love. You want to be tolerant, you want to be forbearing, you need to do it in love. Love is the secret, love is the answer, love is the key. And then finally, the, the, the fifth attitude, we could just say, be diligent. Be diligent. In other words, don't be indifferent. That would be the opposite. The negative way of saying it is, is don't be indifferent. Notice he says here, being diligent, verse 3, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Make every effort. Be eager. Work hard at it. The idea here is you're zealous. You're passionate about unity. And by the way, that being diligent, the way they translate it in the English is kind of helpful. It tips us off that there's something going on here that's more continuous. This is a present participle, which means that you should be continuously being diligent. You should be diligent all the time. This is not anything you can rest or relax from. We must constantly be going and working, for example, it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, if you see, uh, if you're bringing your offering to the Lord and you know that your brother has something against you, you leave that offering there and you go and you be reconciled to your brother. Or uh, Matthew 18 says that, that if your brother sins against you, you're to go. Guess what? Whether you've sinned against someone else or they've sinned against you, it's always your responsibility to go. It's never your responsibility to wait for them to come to you. And that's, that's just working hard. There's just this constantly going. If, listen, if you're married, you know that there's a constant going, a continuous going to one another, either to make something right, to seek forgiveness, or maybe to lovingly admonish or point out another issue, a sin in your spouse's life. There's brothers and sisters. You're constantly going. Maybe you don't see this as if you're little, but your parents definitely see it because they're constantly telling you, now you need to go to your sister. You need to go to your brother. You need to make that right, right? I mean, there's this constant going, and that's, listen, this is, this is the hard work of unity. We cannot take a passive approach when it comes to unity. You can't just say, well, you know what? Time heals all wounds, and we're just going to sit back and let time heal this. Well, there may be a case where it's best just to back off and, and, and let God work in the situation and heal it. I'm not saying to, to always bowl in like a bull in a china shop and you know, address it. There may be wisdom in waiting and giving it some time. But the point is that unity doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. And, and once you achieve it, it doesn't automatically stay that way. It requires constant effort to maintain it. And, and I think the irony of, of all this is a peacemaker must be a fighter. You, you need to fight to preserve unity. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
God puts it on you. God puts it on me. God puts it on us. As long as it's up to us. It doesn't, he didn't say anything about, well, the, but, but, but they're not, or they're, it's not there. It's not about what they're doing or not doing, what they're saying. Not, no, it's, as far as it's up to you, you do everything you can do to be at peace with all men. And again, this is an, hopefully an obvious observation here, but this whole instruction that Paul's giving in Ephesians chapter 4 was to the entire church. Listen, so, so the point is this, preserving the unity of the church is not just my responsibility as a pastor. It's not just the elder's responsibility or the deacon's responsibility. No, it's, it's everyone's responsibility. Everyone who cares about Christ and his church needs to take ownership of and feel the responsibility for the unity of the church. You can't afford to have this who cares attitude or, you know what, it, it's not my problem or, you know, it's none of my business. Now listen, unity is the result, it's the blessing of everyone being jealous and zealous for unity. And so if you hear or see a root of bitterness springing up in our church and in someone's heart, don't just ignore it. Don't just tell someone else about it. Do something about it before it takes over the garden. Before this weed takes over our garden. Dig it up. Hit it with some spiritual roundup. Do whatever you gotta do. If you hear someone gossiping or complaining or being judgmental or being critical, you need to lovingly, graciously, gently, patiently admonish them and help them uproot and deal with whatever whatever it is that's going on in their heart. One of my favorite one-stop shop commentaries that I use almost weekly is the Believer's Bible Commentary by William McDonald. And he said something I thought very profound in his comments on this text. He said this, quote, there is enough of the flesh in every one of us to wreck any local church. There's enough of the flesh in all of us, in me, in you, to wreck any local church. Therefore, we must submerge our own petty personal whims and attitudes and work together in peace for the glory of God. What a great exhortation. And so there we have the five attitudes that we need to exhibit in our lives whenever we interact with one another. And if our lives are characterized by these five attitudes, we will have very little problem keeping the peace, getting along with one another. And I would challenge you to put this text to the test. Put it to the test. The next time you have conflict with your spouse, with your parents, with your children, with your brothers and sisters, with somebody in your neighborhood, at your work, at school, wherever, put put this past to the test. I guarantee you, I guarantee it, the reason why you got cross-threaded, you're, 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 you're sideways with one another, it is because someone, one of you or both of you, is not being humble, you're not being gentle, you're not being patient, you're not being tolerant, and you're not being diligent to preserve the unity between you. This is kind of the oil, I guess you could say, that, that makes relationships work. This text is really so important. It's like the additive in whatever in your engine that just keeps the, the thing running smoothly and just minimizes the friction and just keeps it from overheating and things locking up. And right, sometimes we get overheated in our relationships with other things lock up in our relationships and our marriages. This is, this is the oil right here. It's these five five attitudes that we need to cultivate. But let me just remind you in closing, listen, it is impossible, humanly impossible for us to cultivate these attitudes in our own power and strength. These don't come natural to any one of us. These are are, are spiritually motivated, cultivated and motivated and maintained, and it's the Holy Spirit who cultivates these things in our lives. We, we know them as the fruits of the, what? 
the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so the fruit of the Spirit is necessary to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How are you going to maintain or preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? You need to have the fruit of the Spirit. And how do you get that? You go to the Holy Spirit and you say, Holy Spirit, would you please produce these things in my life? And so the Holy Spirit has not only provided us unity, but he also provides us the means to maintain that unity. He produces the unity, but he also produces the fruit it takes to preserve it. So don't run out of here with a list to buckle down on. I got to work hard at that and grit your teeth. And No, you got to go to the Holy Spirit with this list and say, would you make these things true of me? And the way I think, the way I act, the way I respond, the way I talk, the way I treat other people in my life, work this in my life for your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the simplicity of this text and just this list that is really short and sweet. But uh, if all we ever remembered were these five character traits, Lord, it would have a revolutionary effect in the way that we interact with our fellow man, starting with our spouses and our families and in our homes, Lord, and ultimately here in this church. And so we ask that you would be gracious to us, Lord, and by your Spirit produce these things in us along with the unity that you've already produced, Lord, that, it, that unity would be coupled with these traits, these attitudes that would make it possible for us to be diligent to preserve the unity that we enjoy together. Lord, I pray we take this charge seriously. Lord, there's nothing you care about more than, than us being perfected in unity, and so we pray you continue to accomplish that work for your glory and your honor. And for the sake of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.